And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. If you're a regular listener, you may recall my conversation a few years back with an old friend and colleague of mine, Cody Keenan, the former chief speechwriter for President Obama. Well, now Cody's written a book, a splendid book called Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America. It's about 10 eventful days in 2015, during which a lot of history was made, some soaring and some tragic. The book's a a wonderful window into Obama, his White House, and the role of speechwriter, really speech collaborator, to a president for whom the power of words meant so much. I sat down with Cody this week before an audience at the Institute of Politics to talk about this and his own journey. Here's that conversation. Cody Keenan, it's great to see you, brother. It's been uh, been a while. Yeah, amen. Uh, and I appreciate you being here. You're you, you're coming down from some school on the north side there. Uh, yeah, I should start by saying thanks for letting a Northwestern guy in here. <laughs> I just came from class. Where, you're, uh, uh, where you teach speech writing. Um, but it's good of you to be here at the Institute of Politics, and we're happy to have you. Chicago is, is, is really your original home. This is where you were born. You, uh, much of your youth was spent here. In fact, you were born in Wrigleyville. That's right. And you uh, uh, remain to this day, I know, a loyal Cubs fan, Bears fan. And I was wondering if this is how you learned how to write so poignantly about sorrow and loss. Yeah. The, the Venn diagram between being a, a Democrat and a, and a Cubs and Bears fan is a circle. <laughs> um, and your folks uh, were in the advertising business, uh, creatives in the advertising. What, tell me about them. What did they do? Well, they, they, so they were in client relations, which really is a fancy way of saying they took clients to Cubs games. Um, but they taught me how to tell a story. You know, it, it's just they were, they were selling, you know, it was the 80s, so they were selling cars and beer. But there's a story to be told in every commercial. And, and I was just, so there's, a, there's a marketing component to politics that I picked up from them. Were you a writer as a kid? Was writing a big thing in your life? Is that something that you inherited from your, your folks? Yeah, my mother was also an English teacher in high school before she got into advertising. She got her uh, master's in journalism from Northwestern. Um, I was a bigger reader. I was a voracious reader, which I think is a direct parallel into good writing. I think to be a good writer, you have to be a good reader. And I, I'm doing a stop later on this tour in Ridgefield, Connecticut, which is where I end up going to high school, at public school there. Um, and my conversant will be my 11th grade English teacher. Yeah. Um, because she set me on this course. Watch your grammar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, and was politics something that you talked about in your house a lot? Was that something of interest to your folks? My, my parents bickered about it a lot at the dining table. My, my mom had always been a liberal. Um, she'd volunteered on the McGovern campaign. She volunteered on the Ted Kennedy campaign in 80. My dad was a Reagan Republican, came from mm. California. Um, and uh, they, they just kind of, you know, bickered over politics all the time. Not, not real fights, not like today, right? Where if you have a, a MAGA person, a Democrat in one family, they might end up divorced. But it was just... That's how I absorbed it, and I wanted to know what they were arguing about. And we subscribed to the paper edition of the Tribune, you know, and I'd, I'd plow through it to see what was going on. When it was a real paper. When you wrote there, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I meant. <laughs> so um, you went off to Connecticut. Presumably they got jobs in the East. Mm-hmm. You were the quarterback of your football team. Mm. 
and you got injured. Blew yeah, out your knee. Blew out my knee, everything in it. Uh, I was out for two years. And so I thought I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, and then you came to Northwestern. Yeah. And like a lot of aspiring doctors, you, you then confronted chemistry and became a poli-sci major. That's, that's why they make you take chemistry first. You know, I, wanted to, I loved biology. Give me yeah. that. But no, chemistry and I did not get along. Was there a focus of your studies in poli-sci? Was it on American politics? It was on American politics. And um, as a writer, I think the only poli-sci course that I just had a real aversion to was statistics and polling and political research. Mm-hmm. It just didn't make sense to me. Numbers, I, that's why I'm a writer. I just couldn't, I couldn't crack that. Um, and then you graduated and faced the terror of trying to figure out what to do. Uh, and some friends inveigled you to come to Washington. Yeah, a couple of North Western guys pressured me into it, and I ended up living with one of them when I got there. And he was in Teach for America, um, which is incredibly important, but it was not useful to me to get a job in Washington. I knew nobody. Um, you know, my parents weren't donors, which is the way a lot of kids get jobs. I didn't know anyone, so I just kind of... Back then, we used this website called HillZoo. I mean, this was before social media and before LinkedIn. And so there's this janky website called HillZoo.com where people would post internships. And HillZoo sounds like a barber shop. Yeah, it was. It kind of mm-hmm. like, used Comic Sans. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't a great website. But I found my internship with Ted Kennedy there. And what? What was it? Just that that was an internship that was available, or did you, as a a good Irishman have an affinity for Kennedy, or what, what, what was it that attracted you to him? Well, who I didn't have a great, I, I had a great political science degree and background and could, and could do or write almost anything. I didn't have a great knowledge of how to get a job in politics, but I saw this ad for, for Ted Kennedy, and it's not just that I knew who he was um, and that I aligned with him on all the issues, but as a, as a young Democrat, the, the chance to work for the last Kennedy brother was something that I couldn't pass up. Um, you're too young, actually, to have remembered the other. You you were born after the other Kennedy brothers were, but you you had a sense of him and the whole Kennedy mystique. There was a sense of purpose to it that I, that I wanted in my own life, a sense of uh, uh, public service and the idea that that we can do something to make this country better. Yeah. Why? I mean, why were you imbued with that? I know you said your folks uh, argued about politics. But what gave you that sense of mission about public service? Well, I, when I was thinking about becoming a doctor and then, and then switched to politics, I realized why help just one person at a time when I can go help millions. It was, it was that, it, my dad had, had, is everything to me, it was, but it was that my mom's kind of big heartedness, you know, always chiding me. Well, they both did to, to stand up to bullies, to always be nice to everyone in school, to, to help other people out. And that just, as you grow up, you try to think of other ways to do that. And I, because I grew up in, you know, but we ultimately moved from Wilmette to, or from uh, Wrigleyville to Wilmette. And it was just a place with, you know, amazing public schools, public parks, an incredible public library. And you start to think as you get older and realize what other people have and don't, that I wanted other people to have the, the same kind of chance that this country gave me, that living here gave me. And the people I saw doing that were Democrats. You, you started in the mailroom. Which normally, you know, that's like the sort of American story. You start in the mailroom and you work your way up. But it turns out that working in the mailroom for someone who wants to be a speechwriter or wants to write about, uh, you know, write in service of politics and public service, 
um, is a pretty meaningful place to be. Talk about the letters that you yeah. would read when, and, and presumably Ted Kennedy got letters from all over the country because he was more than just a Massachusetts senator. He was an iconic figure when it came to the fight for health care and so many other things, equal education and so on. Yeah, a lot of the letters flat out said, my senators don't represent me, so I'm writing to you. Um, but there are also just a lot of people who would just wanted to write to the last Kennedy brother to, to touch that family in some way. But reading letters in the mailroom changed the way I thought about politics right off the bat. And I, you know, my, my idea of what it looked like came from the TV show The West Wing because that was popular when I was in college and graduated. It was still on the air. And you get there and you read these letters and you realize quickly it's just very, very different. And these letters would be, you know, people would splash their private hopes and pains on the page. They wouldn't even necessarily be asking for anything in particular. There's any time a letter would come in and say, I'm having a problem with my Social Security benefits or whatever, someone in the Boston office would figure that out right away. But a lot of the ones that came to him in D.C. were, they just wanted him to know what their life was like. And there was this kind of deep hope to it, even if they were sad, that somebody on the other end would care, would read this letter and care. And that changed the way I thought about politics forever. And that changed the way that, that I wrote forever. Yeah. Uh, wh- what did you do with the letters? Did, w- you responded to each one of them? Or did you pass them along to someone else? Or We had a legislative correspondent who would do it all. I, I was basically just my job to read and route them huh. first. Um, ultimately, I graduated up to replying to them. Um, but, but it's always, he was really good at constituent services. Yeah, famously really, so. Famously so. I mean, he had a whole office in Boston that just, if you had a problem, we're going to solve it in an hour. Yeah. You know, what's interesting to me about that story about you in the mailroom is uh, my experience with uh, President Obama. And one of the first things that he did was insist that he get 10 letters a day. You know this because he would share those letters with us, uh, 10 letters a day from people across the country, people in the in the correspondence uh, department of the White House uh, would uh, try and pick 10 that were representative of the kinds of letters they were getting on, on a particular day. And he would often respond to them, uh, sometimes call them. And we'll talk a little bit later. I mean, there were, we could talk about it now. There were people, uh, uh, Natoma Canfield was an example of a woman who really was struggling in the healthcare system and was, and she became a symbol for people within the White House and ultimately in speeches of why he was making that fight. Mm -hmm. He still has her letter on his personal office wall right now, framed. And the great thing about these letters was, you know, we would have morning message meetings where we talk about what goes into a speech. We would have access to polling data, focus groups. But I often found the most profound things came from those letters. I would change the way I thought about an issue based on the way somebody described it in those letters. And what makes that important for speech writing is, you know, Bill Clinton was always famous for saying, I feel your pain, right? But you can also show that you understand an audience what they're going through rather than just have the president up, up there saying, I understand student loans, well, which he did because he had just finished paying them off about four years before he ran for president. Yeah, but, he's doing better now. Yeah, but, but <laughs> you could tell somebody's story in a speech, and we often would, and you'd see the audience nodding along, and they, they would say, you know what, I understand that person. I am that person. That's my life story. And it was really profound. And there was this, this one in particular, Rebecca Erler, who wrote this long, beautiful letter, a woman from Minneapolis in 2014. And she just wanted the president to know what her life had been like through the recession and beyond. Didn't, again, didn't ask for anything. 
there were a couple things that could make life better for someone like me, she'd write, but it was such a beautiful letter that we reached out to her and asked her to introduce the president at an event in Minneapolis, and she did, and I stayed in touch. And then when it was coming time for the 2015 State of the Union address, rather than do, you know, go through all the people in the First Lady's box, we, we built the speech just around this woman, Rebecca, the economic portion, was all custom-tailored to her life and her letter. And I've, I texted with her this weekend. I mean, we've become friends because she's just, she and her husband are my age, and they're just cool. Um, but that's, Have they bought the book? I hope so, Um, but they're wonderful. Um, You know, the other reason why it's so important, and we'll talk more about the interweaving of the stories and storytelling as part of speech writing, but the White House is such an isolating place. Our friend David Pluff described it as like working in a submarine, and you look at the world through a periscope, and you can very quickly lose your sense of touch. You know, Washington has its own interests uh, and conversations that often are disconnected with the conversations and concerns of people out in the country. So these letters are like a lifeline. Mm -hmm. And there were many times when the president would come into a policy meeting and say, you know, I got this letter and I'm really concerned about it. And it would change thinking about policy. So being in the mailroom was a hell of a place to start. Yeah. But you were determined not to stay in the mailroom, and ultimately you went off to graduate school. You went to the Kennedy School at, at Harvard. What, what did you hope to learn? Did you know by that point that you wanted to be a speechwriter? No. I knew by that point, um, I, I actually wanted to be, I'd finally been promoted to legislative aid, so I had my own little portfolio. But as the only legislative aide without an advanced degree on Kennedy's staff, there were some other Senate offices just running circles around me, people who had been doing it for 30 years. And I actually went back to my boss and said, listen, I'm not doing the senator a service here. And so Did I you thought, think you could get ahead in the organization by going to the Kennedy School? I thought it would be easier if he wrote me a letter <laughs> to get into the Kennedy School. And true to his word, he said, listen, if you get, he didn't know the name of the test, but he was like, if you get the, uh, if you get the average on the test, the school test, I'll write you a letter. <laughs> um, and so I did. I got a 590 on the GRE and he wrote me a letter. <laughs> But I, I assumed I needed a, I finally needed to get that numbers background. Uh, and the, the MPP program there had a deep background in economics and statistics. But it was also during the Kennedy School when the Obama campaign came calling about speech writing. Uh, and I changed my course. Because I, I had been, I had written a few speeches for Senator Kennedy at that point. He didn't have a speech writer. So you just kind of wrote for your issue area. But I had been on the Senate, on but, the uh, floor. So he didn't have a speech writer. Right. One of the, one of the most celebrated speech makers of our time he had he had a legislative director who'd been with him for 40 something years Mm -hmm. who just edited the heck out of every speech to get it where it needed to be so he was he was kind of like a chief speechwriter, even though he didn't write anything for him but but what really sparked my interest was i was on the floor in 2004 at the convention when obama gave that speech because i was working for ted kennedy we all got to go up for the week and just that changed my life did that did you say i want to work on a speech like that yeah, right away. I wanted to work on a speech like that. Um, no, the first speech I wrote for Senator Kennedy was a floor speech, you know, for the 100 people at home watching C-SPAN 2. And it's not particularly good. I still have it. But, but to watch somebody read what you've written out was electrifying, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I called my parents. I was like, turn on C-SPAN 2. Um, and it was just really, really exciting. And I got to write a few more for him over time. They found C-SPAN 2 in time to see your speech? I think my mom actually, like, emailed back, what channel is C-SPAN 2? <laughs> <laughs> 
So the Obama campaign called, I think, uh, Stephanie Cutter, yep. a mutual friend of ours, suggested that you, who was very close to Ted Kennedy, yep. suggested that you check out uh, the Obama campaign. Mm-hmm. So you had minor speechwriting experience, but you very, oh, yeah, very applied for that job. Favreau, is that who hired you? Yeah, so John Favreau and I shared a mentor in Stephanie Cutter. She was Kennedy's communications director while I was there, and then she was Kerry's communications director in the 04 campaign. Mm-hmm. And she connected us. And I, I think what mostly helped me get that job was that Favs was just drowning. You know, he was the only writer at the time. He hadn't hired Adam Frankel yet. I, I remember. I, and, was, uh, I was the one who was drowning him. Yeah. And he, he said, look, we, we can't pay you, but if you want to come out and intern, get out here. Mm-hmm. And what was that experience like? I mean, I know what it was like for me, but what was it like for you? And how did your, how did your writing evolve through that campaign? Well, it was terrifying because I, and I never, I don't think I've ever fully sh- shaken the idea that I'm a bit of a dilettante who doesn't belong here. You know, I'd probably written 10 speeches in my life. And here I am driving out to Chicago, which was awesome, to work on the Obama campaign. So on the drive from Boston, I listened to both of his books on tape to just try to get down his voice, get down his worldview. I never met him on the campaign. You know, my experience was obviously different. Really? Because you were traveling with him all the time. But he was only in Chicago maybe three times while I was there and came in and he'd address the staff, but then go into high-level meetings with you and Pluff and everybody else. The first time I met him was in the Oval Office. I don't want to skip too far ahead. but um, So the campaign was really, the first thing I wrote for him on the campaign was his opening statement at the NAACP debate. And there were not, still nine candidates in the race. And just to watch that was incredible. And then you just kind of bone up quickly on every issue under the sun. And Favs was a patient and dedicated mentor who would, you know, make detailed edits to the speech, walk me through not just what Obama would want to say, but why he would want to say it, and uh, kind of get us all on the same page with campaign messaging. You went to the White House with, and there was a, I mean, I, I've said this many times that I had a lot of wonderful experiences in the White House, but the, the consistently great experience was meeting every day with uh, the speechwriters, or the wordsmiths, as I called you guys. Um, and uh, it was, it was. I don't think, I think Rhodes may have been 30. Everybody else was in their 20s. Yeah, Ben was the grizzled old man at 30. Yeah. Favs was 26. He's younger than me. Yeah. You're younger than me. Yeah. Heady for you guys. It was exciting and, and terrifying because you walk in there and then the economy is falling apart. You know, it's, yeah, it wasn't suddenly, your fault, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but suddenly you're assigned a speech on housing policy. And I've never written about housing policy. So you have to find somebody at Treasury or upstairs in the NEC to explain it to you and then, and then write it in a speech and the president go out. It was like drinking out of a fire hose um, for a long time. And really exciting and heady, but also kind of scary, too. Because our yeah. own families were dealing with that at the time. Yeah. Um, everybody was. Yeah. But you guys, I mean, the I would say the first 10 or 15 minutes of those meetings were basically a lot of jokes. Yeah, romper room. Yeah, which may, it was like a writer's room. We were very punny. Yeah, yeah, I, I enjoyed that. Well, I, I've kept that tradition going. You used to, you, you know, you'd, you'd kind of raise your eyebrows but not look up from your Blackberry and wish us all hello. That hasn't changed. I, hello, wordsmiths, whenever yes, we came yeah, in. Yes. And, you know, once you left... And I became chief. I did that every morning with my speechwriters, and I still do it every morning with my uh, students. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files.
And now, back to the show. You rose through the ranks. You were appointed at, at some point deputy uh, chief speechwriter. Um, I left the White House in January of 2011. One of the last things that happened when I was in the White House was the horrific shooting in in uh, Tucson, Arizona, of uh, Gabby Giffords, uh, Congresswoman Giffords. Uh, the president went down and gave the eulogy, uh, or she, he spoke at a memorial service for those who had died in that shooting. Uh, obviously, Congresswoman Giffords uh, mercifully survived, miraculously survived. Um, and there was one, uh, and I remember this very well, because everybody said after the speech, like, who wrote that speech? Um, and this, I just want to read a couple of paragraphs of this. I want you to talk about it. He was talking about a, a nine-year-old girl named Christina Taylor Green, and Christina came out to see her congresswoman and was, was shot and killed. And he said, Christ, uh, Christina was given to us on September 11, 2001, one of 50 babies born that day to be pictured in a book called Faces of Hope. On either side of her photo in that book were simple wishes for a child's life. I hope you help those in need, read one. I hope you know all of the words to the national anthem and sing it with your hand over your heart. I hope you jump in rain puddles. And then he said, if there are rain puddles in heaven, Christina is jumping in them today. I get uh, verklempt even when I read these words today. And here on earth, we place our hands over our hearts and commit ourselves as Americans to forging a country that is forever worthy of her gentle, happy spirit. Um, tell me about that, that particular, because it, that is the kind of thing that, that makes a speech memorable, powerful, meaningful. And I know it's the sort of thing that you as a speechwriter are looking for to give that depth of feeling uh, to a speech. Tell me about how that came about. Yeah, my, we, we saved this for the end of the speech after he'd, you know, in a, in a eulogy, he usually he takes time to remember all the victims, and in this one there were a lot. But then also kind of instruct Americans as to what we're supposed to do now that they're gone, what are our responsibilities. And I, I, my favorite part is even before that section you're reading where I changed up the language so that it wasn't really the way Barack Obama would talk. It was the way that a little girl might talk, that, that she had gone to this, um, event and, and she had just run for student council and she thought that a, you know she wanted to go see her congresswoman someone she was sure was was good and pure and important. I wanted to describe what democracy might have looked like to a nine year old, um, and then we let her down and thought about how he might want us to see the world kind of undimmed by cynicism. And then Kyle O'Connor, who was our junior speechwriter at the time, found this book. I still don't know how this Faces of Hope book with her in it. Uh, and that's what the power of good research can do. I mean, it just it just lent itself to this extraordinary story. And then I'll I, I think about speeches constantly, even if I'm not at my computer. They're just always in my head. It makes me an awful dinner companion when I'm trying to think through arguments. And I just want, I'll realize I haven't been listening to a word the other person has said. Yeah. And I remember that line. Well, came I know we're to having me. dinner later, so thanks for the warning. Yeah. <laughs> That line about rain puddles came to me that morning as I was getting ready for work. And then the first thing I would, I just, I grab my Blackberry and I email it to myself. And then when I get to work, weave it into the speech. And that, uh, that gets me too. You know, if you watch the last couple minutes of that speech, it is, it is something. Yeah. Yeah. 
well, anyone with a beating heart, I think, would feel the same the same way we all think of our kids and grandkids. And let's talk, you, you became the chief speechwriter in 2013 when John Favreau left. I want to talk about this wonderful book, Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America. There's so many things I love about the book, but one of them is it really does give you a sense of w- what goes into writing a speech. And one of them is that, the letters, the history, the hidden, the hidden revelatory story, um, and you say research is. I mean, I'm sure you put a premium on that, and the staff put a premium on that. Mm-hmm. I I read constantly in the White House, um, not just custom tailored for each speech, but just just all the time, everything I could because. Each of us as individuals is not the font of all wisdom. We don't have a monopoly on good ideas. I'd get them from anywhere and then just try to improve on them. You know, um, for, for the Selma speech that I used to start the book, I, I read um, part of the Taylor Branch trilogy just to really get in the mindset of, I wanted to know what the marchers were trilogy doing. Trilogy on the civil rights movement. On the civil rights movement. movement. I, I wanted to know what the marchers were doing that morning to get ready and prepare. This was the speech marking the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. Mm-hmm. And it's just doing that kind of reading is so important because empathy is really critical to speech writing, super critical. You, you want it's kind to, of important to governing too, I yeah. argue. But yeah. um, that and a sense of shame, I think, are missing from our politics. But but there are limits to empathy. You you can imagine, right? For Tucson and Newtown, you can imagine what it might be like to lose a child. But if you don't have children yet, it's a stretch. You need to talk to people who do. Um, I have one now, so it, I, I think I finally get it. But. But if I was writing about anything that was outside my own lived experience, I would make it a real point to read up or talk to the president or talk to somebody else and, and try to get into the audience's head first. Talk about the, the, why you chose. I, I know this book has been in your head. You, you talk about being in your head, which obviously is an expansive place. Uh, I, you, you, you talked about this 10 days and this book. You, you were helping uh, President Obama on his memoirs you you know, but and all during that period, you were saying, "I've got this book in my head that I really need to write," and it was about these ten days. You were in the White House for two thousand nine hundred twenty-two days. Yeah, but who's counting? Right. Uh, and you chose these ten. Yeah. Why did you choose these ten? It's. It, I mean, on its own, every, you'll remember all of the stories and all the all of the events in this book you won't remember that they all happen in the same 10 day span i mean that in in and of itself is a story that demands to be told and part of me wanted it to be this book that lives through history that so that someday some my daughter reads this and her generation reads this and goes wow um i remember someone wrote i can't remember who that it's just it 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 was too far-fetched for an entire season of the west wing everything that was in these 10 days but they every event of those 10 days also say something profound about america you know the the it, they began, day one was the shooting in Charleston where a white supremacist walked into a black church. Uh, he'd been self-radicalized and obsessed with Confederate iconography and, and murdered eight black prisoners and their pastor during Bible study. Um, and then I get into the workings of the White House too. How do, how do we snap to? Does, does the president give a statement the next morning? What do we say? What, what is the president supposed to do in that situation? How do we prepare it? The families of the victims forgave the killer the day after that, which was just truly extraordinary on live television. We're all watching it with our mouths open. Um, and that kind of changed the tone of the week, I think. You know, I don't have data to back it up, but, but it, it changed things in the White House. President Obama did not want to go give a eulogy 
He didn't want to speak. He, Explain why. We had done over a dozen at that point after mass shootings. And this goes back a few years, the, the, the shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, where 20 little kids were murdered in their classrooms along with, with six of their educators, um, was right after he'd been reelected. And he put aside his second term agenda right out of the gate to try to do something about guns because it was just what an abdication of leadership that would be if he didn't. And he had a little boost by Joe Manchin and Pat Toomey, who's, a, who's an arch conservative from Pennsylvania with an A rating from the NRA. They both had one. They decided to work together on a background checks bill. And even though we knew the odds in the Senate would be long, that gives you something to, to try for. And so he traveled the country for a few months. He made it a centerpiece of a State of the Union address, big emotional, powerful ending. And in the end, in, in, not, in April, it failed. It, it didn't just fail. Re- Republicans blocked a vote on it with the parents of the Newtown kids watching from the gallery. And that's about as cynical as I've ever seen Barack Obama get. He went out and spoke in the Rose Garden with those families. I, I handed him a draft of the speech, and he said, look, I'll, I'm going to use this as a, as a template, but I'm just going to wing it. This... Was this the, uh, were these the remarks where he literally cried? That was the day, that was the day of the Newtown shooting. Day of the Newtown he, shooting. He cried in the briefing. But room. there was real anger yeah. that day, you know, yeah. he's, he's as, as you know, and as everyone knows. Yeah. But he's, he's remarkably composed at all times. And this was a time when he, he just, as you say, let it let it rip. Yeah, and he came in after that speech into the outer Oval Office, which is this this room just off the Oval where his assistants sit. And he 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 was almost yelling once the door closed. And he said, "What what am I going to do the next time this happens? What am I going to say? I don't want to speak. If if we've decided as a country that we're not going to do anything about this, then I don't want to be the one who offers thoughts and prayers. Yeah, and and just lets the country gives the country the signal that it's okay to move on." before the next one. Mm-hmm. And I, I wondered if he'd hold true to that after Charleston. But there was a moment in these 10 days when you weren't sure whether he was going to speak or not. I mean, I got to confess, I was relieved when he didn't want to because I didn't know what to write after this one. And we knew this, it, this one's much more charged than usual because it goes right into our oldest wounds. You know, it goes right into race. Um, and, you know, the Confederate flag was omnipresent, you know, in, in, in that shooting and in the days afterwards. And, but it, what those families did changed the way he was thinking about it. But also you started to see some Republicans in the South come out against the flag for the first time. Um, Strom Thurmond's son, who was a Republican state rep in South Carolina, said it's time for it to come down. The Republican governor of Alabama just quietly ordered it to come down over the state house, And mass retailers said we're going to stop selling it. And things started feeling a little different than usual after mm-hmm. a mass shooting. And we should just say parenthetically, because the, the great thing about the book is that it's sequential. Um, so you do get a sense of, of what each day was like. And the Supreme Court was considering two extraordinarily important cases at the same time. You did not know how the Supreme Court was going to rule. So you're managing a staff that's trying to write multiple scenarios for these events. Yeah. Talk, talk about the Supreme Court cases. I had this great team of speechwriters. And so we, 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 would find, we knew that the Supreme Court was looking at Obamacare for the second time and marriage equality. Um, and it turned out that there were multiple options for each. I mean, we, we find out the same time as everybody else in America. You know, we had a lawyer in the courtroom. That was in the days where they weren't leaked in advance. That's right. We had a lawyer in the courtroom, but we would just find out by watching cable news. 
So you don't want to make America wait several hours for the president to speak after something that big. So we prepared basically win and, win and lose remarks for each. And then the lawyers came in, they're like, well, actually, there's, there are four different options for each. And I was just like, get out, get <laughs> out. Um, so we were working on those too. But again, those go to something fundamental about America. You know, our, if, if Charleston was all about race and whether or not we're going to stand up to white supremacy and stand up for equal rights, these cases were about does this country guarantee some measure of financial security and health insurance to poor people and working people? Does this country, are we going to allow our gay brothers and sisters to get married or are we going to deem them some sort of second-class citizen? All these questions were just coming to the fore at once in these 10 days, and, and we had to write about them the entire time. So returning to uh, the speech in uh, Charleston, you, you, uh, you describe in the book the sort of agonizing process of trying to figure out what to write, including sleepless nights, long strolls, cigarettes. I've quit now. I have a daughter. <laughs> Good. My mother found out that I smoked from reading this book, and I knew she wouldn't. It would break her heart. You deceived her this long, huh? Yeah. Talk about the evolution of that speech and, and describe that this was the last sort of event uh, in this book, the Supreme Court. In fact, you flew off to Charleston when uh, the, uh, the day the Supreme Court ruled on, on uh, same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. But the speech sort of, this speech was a particularly difficult speech. In some ways, those speeches, given the fact that they came out as, as you hoped, as the president hoped, were easy to write. This one was really hard. Really hard. And I'm very honest in this book, too, about what a challenge it is to write for him uh, in general, let alone on something of, of this important and all these different third rails in one speech. Um, it, it helped that the, the mood in the White House was slowly lifting over the course of the week and just the way the country is conducting itself. And then suddenly Obamacare wins again and then marriage equality becomes a reality. And a, and a bunch of our um, colleagues you know, were suddenly told you can get married. Uh, which which we always knew should be true, but to finally get it was a huge relief. But I, I'd been struggling with this speech all week long. I'm glad you mentioned the all-nighter. It's one of my favorite passages in the book, just describing how weird an all-nighter in the West Wing is. Um, yeah. But I knew that the draft I'd been working on wasn't there. Um, and he's talked about this publicly, too. He talked about it on the Springsteen podcast he did. I knew it wasn't there. And, and he, he hadn't given me much to go on, and he knew that, too. But... Um, it's, you used to have a phrase that just drove us insane when you'd read a draft and you'd say, uh, if so, what was it about the runway? I was like, I don't think we're landing on the runway. Or I don't remember exactly, but yes, I used to send you guys back to the drawing yeah. board quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I think we're undershooting the runway here yeah, or yeah. something like that. and We'd all just go, ah, axe. Yeah. Um, but I knew it, but I was out of time too, and so I gave it to him. Um, Thursday evening, and I'd agonized over it for three days. He calls me back to the White House three hours later, 11 p.m., and he he tore up the last two pages in their entirety, which he'd never done to me before, and he'd rewritten them in three hours after I'd had three days, and they just soared. He took, I had the phrase Amazing Grace, and that's where he started tearing it up, and he wrote out the lyrics, and he, more importantly, used the lyrics to build a structure for the back half of the speech, which was, it's one of those things where in retrospect, I just kick myself for not thinking of it. Because um, it's beautifully simple, but I just, I'd been in my own head all week long writing about, I was terrified, 
writing about race and the Confederate flag and guns coming from him to a country that was still a little bit on edge. Um, but he was, this was one of the things that made him such a great boss. He, he could have been angry at me. You know, he could have sent it to somebody else and just excised me from the equation entirely. He sat me down and walked me through it. And it was the first time I ever apologized to him for not hitting the mark. But he, he said, look, brother, we're collaborators. You know, you gave me what I needed yeah, to work with here. Which I, I don't know how many speeches. You guys were superb speech writers. I don't know how many piece, speeches we gave him knowing that the speech was was an, an A minus A speech and that he would make it an A plus speech and that he would buff it up. But that is, it's, I mean, you know, politi- you always like to say, good speech writers say, well, that's really his work. Um, but he really, there always, no matter how good you were, there always was this sense that he's the best writer in the group. That's what made it so hard to write for him. Every yeah. time, I, we knew he just wanted something to work with. That wasn't enough for us. We wanted to impress him. You know, We wanted to prove that we d- deserved to be there. We all suffered from some form of imposter syndrome. Um, and he made it abundantly clear a lot of the time that, that we should feel that way. Not always. There were plenty of times where he was like, I don't know, just, you know, just write something. Um, but not on the big stuff. On the big stuff he delivered. And so you, you were talking about the, the final morning. You know, where I, I, before, before you get there, yeah. that speech you, that inspired you in 2004, you know, I was working with him on his Senate race. Uh, and, um, you know, we uh, conspired to, to get the keynote speech. He was just a state senator from Illinois, but he had been nominated for the Senate, the U.S. Senate. And uh, we really campaigned to get him uh, this speech and, and then had long negotiations about how much time they were going to give him. They said eight minutes. We said 28. I think it was 17. And as you'll appreciate as a good speech writer, the 17-minute draft was probably better than the 28-minute draft. Always, always. And harder. Yes. Yeah. But um, he, he was the author of that speech. I mean, there, we made small suggestions. We did most, uh, some of the editing because he, he refused to cut his, he, he didn't want to do it. But um, He's told me several times he wrote that himself. Yes. Yeah, yeah. and he, I, I'm here to attest to that. Yeah. I'm here to attest to that. And as you, got, you know, because I used to say to everyone, go back and read that. That's the foundational kind of statement uh, of values and principles uh, for Barack Obama. Um, but uh, really breathtaking, you know, and I, working for him, got this speech, and I said, my God, this is going to be one of the great convention speeches of all time. Anyway, that morning. Yeah, I mean, it's important that you just said all that. He is our chief speechwriter. I say that several times in this book. I, I think people have seen enough of Pete Souza's photos to know just how much he works on this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and it'll all be in the uh, library just down the street someday for people to look at, and I can't wait. Yeah, yeah. Um, unless he unless he spirited some off and hit him in his, his basement. Don't we don't don't, <laughs> don't do it. Eric, Eric Schultz is going to call you in five minutes. Um, so there, you know, I I'm I'm both discouraged and fired up by by what's happened with with the speech. And I've slept three hours and three days. And I I was working on the speech right through ten a.m., which is when decisions come down. I forgot to turn my TV on to see what would happen with marriage equality. We knew that was going to be Friday because the court likes to be dramatic and hold them for the last day. And I start hearing whoops and cheers from all over the West Wing. And I just know 
that we want and you turn it on you see and by we i mean america not yeah, talk about right you see these joyous scenes at the supreme court and like you can't help but get a little bit choked up we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the axe files And now, back to the show. So I go up to see him, and, and a young woman on our team named Sarah Perry had drafted his marriage equality remarks for the morning, and he goes out and did some beautiful ad-libbing on it, too. He, yeah, he, I want to just put a pin in that, because um, one of the things that I, one of the pages I folded over uh, in this book was from that, if I can find it, it may be that I can't. Hold on. You write, he hits the lad the last line, and you write, and you're about running for the helicopter to go down to South Carolina, and, and you write, but he kept going. I cocked my head and watched. It wasn't rare that he would ad-lib. He'd do it all the time. It was rare that he'd do it when there were no further words on the screen to return to. He was on his own here. I was curious as to where he'd fly and how he'd land this plane, uh, and uh, then his words. That's the consequence of a decision from the Supreme Court, but more importantly, it's a consequence of the countless small acts of courage of millions of people across decades who stood up, who came out, who talked to parents, parents who loved their children no matter what, folks who were willing to endure bullying and taunts and stayed strong and came to believe in themselves and who they were and slowly made an entire country realize that love is love. What an extraordinary achievement. What a vindication of the belief that ordinary people can do extraordinary things. What a reminder of what Bobby Kennedy once said about how small actions can be like pebbles being thrown into a still lake and ripples of hope cascade outwards and change the world. Those countless, often anonymous heroes, they deserve our thanks. They should be very proud. America should be very proud. You just read that about 10 times faster than he did at, at the time. He, yeah, and he, he had to catch a helicopter. He spoke even sl- more slowly than usual. And, and I, I still to this day believe that he was genuinely moved that the country had come so far so fast on, on an, a civil rights and equal rights issue. And I asked him about that once. And he said, no, man, the, the reason I was talking so slowly is I was just tired from being up all night rewriting your speech. <laughs> but, but I knew that wasn't true because he gave it back to me at 11 p.m. And he was probably up for several more hours doing something else. I, I really believe he was genuinely moved in that moment. And then, so the military is precise. Five minutes later, the helicopter lands on the South Lawn, and we're off for Charleston. Yeah, a remarkable ad lib that speaks to his the quality of his thought, but also his command of uh, of language. What you found out on the way down to Charleston is that he also had some command of music. Yeah, uh, because you wrote this speech, and he said to you guys on the plane, on the, on the, on the helicopter, I may, I may sing. And I think everybody remembers that. Yeah. He said, if it feels right, I might sing it. And uh, I, just, I was so tired. Was just like you, Normally, I'm risk-averse. I, I, will, I will just instinctively find reasons why he shouldn't do something. Um, but at that moment, we'd, we'd it had been a joyous morning already, and I hadn't slept in days. So I was just like, you do you, man. You know? <laughs> Go for it. And, and once you see, he understood the AME church. Um, he knew that they would be there for him. He knew that they would jump in and join him. And when you see it, you know, it's, it's just not a question. What was it like, you, you write about this, but watching that actually happen? I mean, I, I remember watching it from thousand, a thousand something miles away and how moving it was. But to have been part of this process and to see it actually happen was extraordinary. I was about 10 miles away. 
I stayed on Air Force One yeah. um, because he had made more edits to the speech and I didn't want to risk the wireless cards not working en route to the church or to the arena. So I, I stayed behind, made the edits. and But there was all, for me, selfishly, there was something kind of just nice in being alone and getting to watch it on television and just let all that pressure kind of pour off my shoulders. And not a bad plane. Not a bad plane. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was watching him on TV and he, he paused for 11 seconds before he started singing. And I knew he was going to sing, but I started immediately panicking that everyone at home would think he'd, he was missing a page. Like a page wasn't <laughs> in there. Um, but then he collected himself and started to sing. Yeah. What did you say to him when he came back? Well, I asked him what the pause was all about. You know, if he was trying to create some drama. And he goes, no, man. You know what the thing about Amazing Grace is? And I, I said, obviously not. Um, he said, you got to start low. Otherwise, when you get to a wretch like me, your voice cracks. So you got <laughs> you to really push your diaphragm down and get into it. <laughs> um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you also interwoven through this was your courting of your now wife, Kristen, who was uh, a research director at the White House, which is this, if you were going to write a situation comedy, you would write about a romance between the chief speechwriter and the research director whose job it is to poke holes in everything that the speechwriter writes. Yeah. It was her job to tell me I was wrong multiple times a day, every single day for, and, se- for seven years. And, um, and you guys thought this was good practice for marriage? We're still married. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, we got our squabbles out of the way at work. But I, you know, I write about her because she was my hero. She was, she was the only reason that I could keep writing at that level for that long. And that was true about everyone in our White House. This sounds like such a weird thing to say now after the past several years, but we loved each other. Yeah, We, we were all forged during that first campaign, and yeah. the, more people stuck around for eight years than any other White House yeah. um, because we loved each other. We lived together. We got married to each other. I, I joke with the president now that he's got... He's got dozens of little grandbabies across the country yeah. from people who met and got married by working for him. Yeah. I uh, just had a, a new grandson Congratulations. Uh, this week, and he was one of the first people I sent a picture to. Yeah. Oh, he loves that. Yeah. Loves that. Yeah. Uh, two, I want to just, uh, two things before we, uh, before we finish. Personal about your, about the role of being a White House staffer generally, speechwriter because of the intimacy of your relationship. You literally inhabit someone else's head and you become uh, their, their wordsmith. And to do that, you really have to have a mind meld. Uh, you did that for eight years, more than eight years really, because in the campaign as well, you were a young guy when you started. You had a few gray hairs when you, when you left. And then you worked for him for several years more. What are the challenges of that? You're obviously, everyone who's listening to this podcast can see you're an incredibly bright, thoughtful, fluent person in your own right. But one has to sort of subjugate all of your own identity in some ways to the principle. How do you, how do you deal with that? Um, it's hard. It's hard. It, it, I had a lot of anxiety dreams and still do sometimes, usually about um, him wanting to know where the speech was and, and I didn't know that there was one or it's not ready or, um, but getting into his head was always a complicated task, you know, not just cause we had different upbringings, but he, he had this moral imagination to him that that is what really took the speeches to a higher place than I could reach. And it was a challenge. And, and the challenge of writing this book was actually breaking myself of 
writing like him, trying to write differently. Um, that was really difficult. And then when I went back and reread the first few chapters, they sounded like him. And I went back and, and rewrote those towards the end of the process. Was there a sense at some point, and I'm maybe tipping my mitt because we've had conversations, but just of, okay, I got to get on with the rest of my life and be Cody Keenan now, not the president's speechwriter. He would tell me that too, though. He would, he would, he would joke, even though he asked me to stick with him, he would say, you know, it's time for you to figure out what you want to do and get out of here. And that's where this book came in. I knew, I didn't feel good starting this while he was still paying me to, to write about him. Um, so I waited until that was over. But it, I'll confess, I, I really wanted to prove that I could do something without him. It helped that he tweeted about my book. I'll gladly take that. But, but I, you know, I, I'm proud of this book for a lot of reasons. There are a lot of different reasons I wrote it. That's, that's the private one to me. Um, and he read an early copy and, and sent a really nice note last week. And, you know, that means, that means everything. Yeah. Uh, and you're also, you, you're now uh, running Fenway Partners. Uh, and Fenway Strategies. Fen- yeah. Fenway Strategies, sorry. Writing speeches for a whole bunch of people run, managing a staff again. You're teaching speech writing up there at, at yeah. Northwestern, as we said. And you have a baby. Yeah, Gracie. And the baby's name is Grace. Yeah, uh, yeah she and the book were born at the same time. Yeah. Um, she's, you know, she's awesome. I, I miss her while I'm, while I'm traveling. But uh, she, you know, they're both named after the concept, obviously, not each other. But she was, we found out uh, we just moved to New York two months before the pandemic hit and then we found out Kristen was pregnant two weeks before New York City shut down and you know remember it was terrible in New York City 30,000 people died pretty yes. quickly so that was a frightening year between the pandemic and and you know um, kind of the all the upheaval after George Floyd as exciting as that was it was it was also you know unsettling and uh, the election you know that that went on for a while she was um, there's no such thing as a relatively easy pregnancy but she was complication free and every night uh, she would, you know, just kind of kick at the same time, like clockwork. And she was just, we didn't deserve it, but she visited grace upon us for that whole year. Yeah. So it was a no-brainer. Finally, I just want to ask you, you know, reading this book was a joyful experience. Thank you. And especially having lived some of that journey uh, with, with you and him. But I think anyone who reads this book will get a sense of idealism sense of possibility, a sense of, of hope, a sense that things can actually turn out the right way. But I also had a feeling reading it that I was reading it through kind of sepia-colored glasses uh, because these have not been particularly hopeful times. These have not been times of unity in our country. So you've read the epilogue. Uh, so how do you look at things today? How does someone who experienced this experience, who's seen progress how do you view the world now and what what do you have to say we got some young people in our audience Mm -hmm. what do you have to say to them about the possibilities of the future yeah i I don't see a conflict between writing about this experience and that it was hopeful and sometimes joyful and fun to do this to, to to struggle to do good work uh, in democracy with the realities we're living through now because it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows in the Obama White House either. But what I do want young people to take away from it is that it is a worthy endeavor. It's worthy of your time and your energy. You will, you know, you may never be lucky enough to join a campaign like ours or to work for someone like Barack, but, um, boy, I shouldn't say that out loud, the, like President Obama, but 
if if you join a team that is committed to something bigger, it really can be fun. And another theme of this book is that none of these things that happened in those 10 days were really his triumphs. You know, he pushed Obamacare through, but that was the result of a 100-year movement for universal health care. And we're still not there yet. You know, marriage equality was a result of a 50-year movement for LGBTQ rights. We're not done with civil rights. Um, out of the 2,922 days in the White House, we usually went on happy if we just move the ball forward just a little bit. But all of those days are what contribute to the big victories. You know, and, and democracy can be really frustrating. Working in the White House, working in Congress can be really, really frustrating. It can also be extremely rewarding. And, you know, if we did have more people in public service who thought that way, who cared, who knew that their efforts could make a difference even if it takes a long time, we'd be in a better place. Um, and it's not impossible. And that also doesn't gloss over all the very real work we have to do right now to preserve this democracy and, and keep it alive. Or honest differences on issues that in a democracy you have to thrash out in good faith for us to, to truly make progress. The book is Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America. You said earlier, Cody, that um, we loved each other in the White House. I certainly feel that way about you. And as such, I'm incredibly proud of this work. And I hope that everybody reads the book. Thank, Thank you. you so much for being here. Love you back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.